Exodus chapter 32. We note at the end of Exodus 31, the ending gives these amazing words that God gives Moses these two tablets of the covenant written with the finger of God. And we spent some time talking about that just absolutely uh, staggering picture there to end this scene with Moses on the mountain. Now remember, he's been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. God has been there and receiving the law and has been giving all the details in regards to the, the worship, the tabernacle, the priesthood. All of these great details are being given to Moses. And so now as we come into chapter 32, we're going to get to find out what was going on down at the bottom of the mountain while Moses was up there in receiving the the commandments. Notice verse 1 of Exodus 32. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So here we see a a problem that immediately arises for the people. Forty days have gone by and now they're looking around going, well, we don't know what's happened to Moses all this time. Well, if you remember, why is Moses up on the mountain in the first place? Except back in Exodus 20, when God had come down and spoken the Ten Commandments, the people then turned to Moses and say, uh, don't let God do that again. You go up and talk to God. And we will listen to you when God tells you everything. And so this was their own idea that we need a mediator. And so Moses is that mediator. And now he's gone up onto the mountain and is receiving these things. And now the 40 days have gone by. What we are seeing then is is a problem. They look around and go, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. We don't know what's going on. He's been up there all this time. And we just think that it might be the end of him. So Aaron, you need to do something for us that you need to make us gods who are going to lead us the way uh, into this promised rest ahead of us. And it's interesting that this becomes the, the beginning point of some major problems because when you think about what transpires here, one of the things that immediately just notes is that they're impatient. They're just not going to wait for Moses anymore. Uh, It's been too long. We're not going to wait around for him any longer. And and usually impatience leads to greater sins, doesn't it? That's kind of usually the thing that keys us into other sins. And that's what happens here. Is now they say, because we're not going to wait anymore, you'll see in the language that they're saying, we just are not going to wait for Moses and we're not going to wait for God. And the idea of waiting in the scriptures is often a reference point to trusting. And so we're just not going to trust in whatever's going on up there anymore. And what we need to do is take matters into our own hands. And so, Aaron, you need to do something for us. We don't trust that God is going to take care of this situation. We're not going to trust that Moses is going to come back. We're not going to wait for him any longer. And so, Aaron, what you need to do is rise up. Now get up and do something for us. We want you to make uh, these, these gods for us who shall go before us. And I think it's important to get a sense of what they're asking. Because 
It doesn't seem to be from the discussion that is going on that they are saying, we want to just give up on God and we want to follow idols instead. What they are asking for is some kind of visual representation of God. We need somebody to lead us. And Moses is not here to lead us anymore. And so we need something about God that we can see so that we can go on ahead into the land that we need to go. And as for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And so that's where the basis of the request is, is that they desire to see something physical in regards to some kind of representation for God. Remember, they've had that up to this point. Lest we think that that's something unusual that they're asking, that we've seen that it's been a pillar of cloud and fire that brought them to Mount Sinai, and then that is rested there at the mountain. But now that Moses is up there in that cloud, which appeared to be burning from the foot of the mountain, we need somebody to go ahead of us the rest of the way. We need something that we can see. Now notice how that translates into a problem. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Alright, interesting scene that lays out. And what you immediately get into is the problem of idolatry. We're asking Aaron for a representation and Aaron tells the people, well, bring me all of your gold. And once he receives that gold, he then fashions it into the shape of a calf. And once that is then complete, he declares that the golden calf now represents the God who brought them out of Egypt. We're going to now have worship as you see there in verse 5. We're going to build an altar the next day and it be a feast to Yahweh. Notice it's not a leaving of God. It doesn't say that we're going to have a feast to the Baals or the Asherah. It is to the Lord. Capital letters, all four letters there. Yahweh. We're going to now have a feast to the Lord now that we have this physical representation. And that's what happens in verse 6. That they now wake up early the next day with their burnt offerings and peace offerings and they're singing and dancing and eating and drinking. And what's so interesting about what happens at this moment is that the people are taking what were God's physical blessings and using them for sin. Where did they get all of this stuff? Where did they get all of this gold and silver and all that they're enjoying at this moment? They got it from plundering Egypt. They got it because they had nothing when they were slaves there. But God was so gracious to them and said, when I get done with Egypt, they're going to beg you to leave and give you things as you go. And that's exactly what had happened. And friends, this is the nature of idolatry. Is that what we do is that we take the blessings of God. And we use them for selfish purposes. We use them for sinful purposes. This is the essence of why idolatry is an abomination before God. You're taking what God has given you and the wealth that He has blessed you with and saying, well, I'm going to use those very things to sin rather than to honor God. 
And that's what's happening here at this moment as they take the, the blessings of God and use them for selfish purposes. And how easy it is for us to do likewise. When we take wealth and that is given to us and we use it on our sinful, selfish desires, we take computers and high-speed internet, use it for pornography, we take television, entertainment, use it for sinful viewing. We have a fine way of taking all the blessings of God and using them for sinful, selfish purposes rather than in ways that are holy and good before God. That's the essence of idolatry. And right along with it, what you see the people wanting is some kind of physical point of contact. That's what they're saying. And this is what even Aaron is uttering here. And what the people are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We, we need a physical point of contact. Have you noticed that humans have this uncanny desire to try to put the divine into physical things? For the longest time, you'll, it seems like there's a pause right now, and I'll say that and it'll be on the news tomorrow or something, but it, it seemed like for a while there that there were all of these supposed physical manifestations of God in everything in the world. I remember there was a, I think some church in Tampa where I think the way the sprinklers were hitting the side of the building is that you could see then Mary in, in, the, in there. And so people are coming from all over the world because the sprinkler pattern on the side of the wall was, was giving, we just seemed to seek this physical point of contact for some reason. And that's what they're doing as well, is we need something physical and tangible that we can see and touch. We can't handle an invisible Almighty God. We need something down on our level, which is insulting to God, especially to the language that's used here. This is a gold calf. And the people say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. That's a tremendous insult. That's why God said in chapter 20, you can't begin to start with idolatry with me because you can't even begin to comprehend who God is. We looked at that in Ezekiel 1. Here are some descriptions about the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And we can even physically get our minds around what we're looking at and that's not actually the full-blown scene of God. But we want to put him into some kind of box. We want to be able to see some kind of representation. We want iconography of some kind. We want these physical trinkets and idols and displays because that somehow makes us feel closer to God, which is exactly what God was prohibiting the people to do. Don't do that. You don't worship God through those things. And it kind of happens the same way where people will do that, but like with the church building, like there's something special about the building, and you know, and it's like, no, it's it's just a building. It's not some holy relic of any kind like that. And ultimately, what these things do, as we turn to idolatry, as seems to be our human nature, and we seek these physical representations, and we try to get our hands on things that are. You know, within our grasp that we can hold and understand is ultimately what happens is that we forget God. And that's what happens in this scene. It is really interesting the description that is given in verses 5 and 6 about what is happening in this scene as they are now at the base of the mountain. The language is extremely parallel to the events of what Israel has already done in their worship to God. 
what they are doing is rather than being in fellowship with God, we are seeing them be in fellowship with idols to borrow what Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians. Is the whole idea is what they do now is transfer their worship of the true and living God to now these idols. If you remember, notice the language is first given here. It says in verse 5, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. In verse 6, we're going to have burnt offerings and peace offerings. Well, that's how you were supposed to be worshiping God. And now we're having these burnt offerings and peace offerings to God, but with our gold calf right here. And, and, and not only that, when Moses comes down the mountain, they're going to talk about how there was singing and dancing. Well, when did that happen prior? Well, if you remember, after crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptians are destroyed, there is the song of Moses and all of the people are singing and the women are dancing before the Lord. And so we're transferring this covenantal worship from God to the idol again. And then it says they ate and drank. We spent a lot of time seeing how magnificent it was that here these 73 are able to go up on the mountain. It says they ate and drank and saw God. And now here we are with an idol. And we're eating and drinking and singing and dancing. And we're offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. We're showing themselves to be in fellowship with idolatry rather than fellowship with the true and living God. What they do is they take the things that God had prescribed and the joy that they had of the covenant that they had with God, the covenant meal, the covenant singing, the covenant rejoicing, the covenant sacrifices, and now they apply it all to this idol. This is your God that brought you out of Egypt. How pathetic that is. I think it's interesting that the first Corinthians Apostle Paul, first Corinthians 10 drives on that point explicitly. First Corinthians 10, 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, participants in the altar. So what do I imply them? What's the point of me saying that? The food offered to idols is any, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Notice how He uses an argument against idolatry to the Corinthians by saying, now I want you to think about Israel. Why was idolatry such a big deal? Because what you are doing is aligning yourself not with God. But you're aligning yourself with the worldly things. You're doing what you desire, your desires, your passions, your lusts, your comfort, your ease, what you want to do. We do an amazing job of serving our self-interests, our desires, our wants, and our interests. And call that worship to God. We have an astounding way of doing that. We will do what we want to do. And somehow work out some way to say. That's what God wanted me to do. (laughs) Well that's what idolatry is. That's the whole thing of idolatry. Is going and doing all these various activities you want to do. Say somehow God is pleased by that. And here's Paul going. Don't you know when you're doing these activities. You're not in fellowship with God. You can't have it both ways. 
how often the New Testament drives on that point of you can't serve God and serve wealth or riches or things. And yet so often that's exactly what we're attempting to do is we're going to do all these things. We're going to make these decisions. We're going to live our life in this kind of capacity. And somehow God's happy with that because, well, I did pray about it uh, or I did go to church or some kind of excuse or justification. This is what the people are doing. This is what makes this so real in this scene is that these people have not in their minds turned away from the true and living God at all. They believe they're worshiping Yahweh. And yet we're going to see God says, they've completely left me. They're not interested in worshiping the true and living God. They're interested in worshiping their own desires and saying that God is pleased with that. That's one of the big problems then with idolatry. In fact, I think this really comes out at the end of verse 6. When it says, after they're done with the, the morning sacrifices, the burnt offering and the peace offering, and, and we're singing and dancing, and, and we've had our feast, we're eating and drinking, it says, and then after all that, then they rose up to play. That's a curious line, isn't it? <laughs> so a lot of question, what does that mean exactly? What were they doing that they rose up to play? It's a, it's a word that can be used in terms of pagan idolatrous practices. It's a word that can be used of sexual immorality. I think it becomes fairly clear what's going on when you get to verse 25 that we'll read tonight. It says there, when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Interesting way to describe that. They've completely broken loose. They're behaving like pagan worshipers and are partying. In fact, some translations say they rose up to party. And that's probably about a good way to put the language there. And that may include sexual immorality, but they are in revelry. They are just going to party it up. We've offered our sacrifices. It's time to play. It's time to do whatever we want to do. The language they've broken loose. There were commercials a while back that even said things like that. You just need to break loose. You need to break free. You need to just let go. How often does culture say that? You're uptight. You just need to let go. Here's Moses to say, that's what they're doing and God's going to get them. That's not what you want to do. Breaking loose is not the direction you want to go. And yet that's the picture of what these people are doing is that they are fulfilling their own desires, behaving like the pagan worshipers, and yet all the while calling this to be worship of God. Notice the way Stephen described this. He, he goes through this scene as well, and he puts some interesting layers on it as well. In Acts 7, verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, speaking of Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This, I think, helps us get an idea of what they are actually doing. When it says there in chapter 32, verse 1, Oh, as for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. This is not a legitimate question like, boy, we are really concerned about Moses. It's been a really long time and, you know, it's been 40 days and I'm truly, 
Notice what it says. He thrust him aside. There is derision in what they are doing. As for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. They are thrusting him out of the way. This is the beginning of that process that you'll just read about over and over again. The complete rejection of Moses. They thrust Moses aside and then notice it says their hearts turned to Egypt is the language. We didn't read anything here that said, hey, pack up our bags and go back to Egypt. But that's exactly what's in their hearts. Moses is not our leader. We want a physical contact with God. We want this idol worship who will lead us. And their hearts had gone back to Egypt and was not tied to God. And notice how it's described as well by Stephen. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That really is the essence of idolatry. And friends, every human is an idolater. We rejoice in the works of our hands. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Look how amazing we are. Look at all the things that we've done. And what's worse than that, though, is here we are drawn into a covenant with God only to turn our hearts back to idols, to worship ourselves, and to use God's blessings for paths to sin, rejoicing in the works of our hands. That's the picture. God has drawn them out of Egypt is about to bring them to the promised land. God is about to give them a description of how that they can be with God, that God can dwell in their midst. And all the people desire to do is to turn their hearts to idolatry, to worship the works of their hands, to put themselves first, to worship their own desires, and to use God's blessings as a path for sin. We have to hear that reality. To understand God's response, it's about to unfold here. This is no small thing like, oh, well, you know, those people, they're so silly. They just made a calf and that, that's so sad. They're thrusting out Moses. They are overthrowing his leadership. In their hearts, they want to go back to Egypt and they want to worship the works of their hands and they want to follow their desires and they want to use the wealth that God has specifically given to them to then perform and pursue sin. So what's God say about that? Verse seven, Exodus 32, verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. You have to understand what they've done to see what God's response is. You know, and it's often that we will read verse 7 and, and find that humorous when God says, you know, Moses, these are your people. But friends, God is making a point. Sin has disowned them from God. These are not God's people because God's people don't behave like this. The people have rejected God. 
And God says, they're not my people. These people that you led out of Egypt, they're apparently not mine. Why? Well, he explained it. Because look how quickly they've turned aside from the way that I've told them. Everything that had happened at Mount Sinai over a month earlier, decreeing the Ten Commandments, speaking these words as the mountain shook, they have no regard for it at all. And what God is saying here is, these people deserve the judgment. We should not read this and think, well, here is just a wrathful, angry God burning out of control against His people. The people have made a decision. They have thrown Moses aside. They're worshiping the works of their hands. They're eating, drinking, rising and playing and partying and following their own desires. They're acting like pagan worshipers to such an extent. It was to the derision of the nations around them what was going on there. And God says, they're not my people. And they're worthy of judgment. They're worthy of wrath for what they've done. And I hope that when we read this, we will recognize that that's us. That's us. We turn back to sin. We turn back to idolatry. We turn back to our evil ways. We use God's blessings for sin and for evil. We break loose and we do what we want to do. We become sexually immoral. We turn to our own ways. We quickly leave the path of God. We reject the covenant that God has made with us and we separate ourselves from God. What is playing out right here is the story of humanity. God has come to rescue and the response of the people is we will do what we want to do. No, thank you. We will live how we want to live. We will reject your leadership, God. We will reject Moses whom you've given us. And we will do what we want to do. We're worthy of judgment. We're worthy of this destruction. And it is rightful to us because this is what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And God just says, they're not my people. This path that they've gone down, that's not my path. They cannot be mine. Notice what happens next in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them with the face of, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring with the stars of the heaven, with all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that has been spoke, had been spoken of bringing upon his people. Isn't this of stunning what happens here? Judgment is deserved upon these people. Moses intercedes. Moses does not listen to God and go, you know, that's a great idea. We could make a nation out of me. <laughs> Feel like I'm the only righteous one around here. <laughs> you know, what a logical thing you could say is, well, yeah, okay, that, that sounds good, God. Okay, that works. Verse 11, Lord, these are your people. 
They're not my people. These are your people. And verse 12, God, your name needs to be glorified. The means by which Moses intercedes is staggering. Moses doesn't say, you can't do that. That's not right. Oh, it would be right. This would be justice for what they are doing. They ought to be destroyed for what they are doing against God. The the wages of sin is death. They've separated themselves from God. But Moses says, but these are your people. And Moses goes on to say, your glory is what matters. If you wipe these people out, all the nations are just going to say, you brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. And that would be a negative on your name. That'd be a negative to your glory. People would speak evil of who you are. And that's not what I want to see. That's why you can't do this. Save these people not because they're righteous. Don't save them because they're good. Don't save them because they deserve it. Save them for your own name. Save them for your own glory. By you saving them, you're going to be glorified all the more. You go ahead and rescue them. And then he brings in verse 13. He says, remember the covenant you made. You made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You made a covenant to them. And one of the things that I want you to see is Moses hasn't come down from the mountain yet with all of the information about the priests that we've been reading about and all of that. And Moses is already acting as a high priest. Moses is already interceding on behalf of the people. In fact, he is paralleling Abraham. If you remember, Abraham, he just is, is working for the righteous when God is going to destroy the five cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities of the plains, Adma, Zaboam, and Zoar. And, and Abraham comes in and goes, well, what about the righteous? What if there's 50? What if there's 45? And starts going down. But where Abraham pleads on behalf of the righteous, notice Moses pleads on behalf of the guilty. Moses doesn't come in and go, but there's got to be some righteous people down there. Moses just simply says, for your namesake, for your glory, for your faithfulness, for your promises that you've made, because these are your people. Now what what happens next becomes fascinating how the scene now unfolds. Verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides and on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. And Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat. But it is the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. One primary message. You broke the covenant. What you see Moses doing is showing the people 
that you have broken the covenant with God. It's interesting the location that the, the tablets are not broken on the mountain. That represents God. Where are the people? At the base of the mountain. As soon as Moses gets down to the foot of the mountain, down those covenant tablets go. You have broken the covenant. You have broken these commandments. You have separated yourself from God. And that is what is being exemplified as those covenant tablets that are smashed. Is that you have broken the covenant with God that God was making with you. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you? That you have brought such a great sin upon them. I mean, Moses says, they must have done something to you. You know, that's like the parents coming home and the babysitters letting the kids go bonkers. And like, what did they do to you? What, what, what's going on? This is what Moses says, Aaron, what did they do to you that this has happened? Verse 22. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people. That they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. And out came the scaff. <laughs> Makes sense. Hey, Moses, don't be angry. You know these people. They're a mess. What was I supposed to do? And Aaron's excuse is supposed to sound ridiculous. Because it is. Because our excuses for sin sound just as ridiculous. That's exactly what's at play here. Moses comes down. Why do we have the people breaking the covenant like this? And this is the best you've got. Well, you know, when you throw golden fire, out comes calves. What am I supposed to do? Well, we do that with God. Yeah, I'm just human. I'm just doing what I want. I'm doing what I feel. You know, it's just these desires that I have. I got to be happy, right? I want to do what's good for me. I got to put myself first. I got to be be happy and be comfortable, right? God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Surely, God wants me to be pleasured and enjoy all these things, right? It's just as ridiculous. That's what Aaron's doing. Oh, don't be angry, there, Moses. It's you know. Notice what Moses does in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses took the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today have you been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And then the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, 
But if not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because of the calf, the one that Aaron made. After Moses receives this lousy excuse from Aaron, Moses just shouts out, Who's on the Lord's side? Come here. You know, we have a song that gets that. Please think of this when you sing that song. It might change your tune just a bit. Who's on the Lord's side? One tribe. The sons of Levi now come up and they say, we are. We're willing to do what God says. Whatever God says we will do. We're not participating in this mess out here while they're all eating and drinking and dancing and singing and partying and revelry and all that. We're not doing that. We're on the Lord's side. And the Levites then become the agents of God's judgment. God, here, Moses says, here's what God says. They deserve judgment. And they begin to go throughout the camp. And notice what's said about them in verse 29. They become separated from the other tribes because they showed themselves to be on the Lord's side at this moment. Verse 29 is so interesting. Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. You've been set apart here. It's interesting the tribe of Levi would forever be that. Set apart as the priests of God. Set apart as the ones who were to be on the Lord's side. They were to represent that before the people. Today you've been set aside. Today you've been ordained as being on God's side. And they go through and carry out what was said. And then Moses takes the time here. I love how verse 30 says, The next day Moses now just explains the problem. You have sinned a great sin. Do you begin to understand what you've done? And the answer to that is always no. We don't, do we? We just don't. And what Moses says next is just phenomenal. I'm going to go up on the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. Perhaps atonement can be made for you for what you've done. You have no idea what you've done. God's just disowned you. Those are your people. I'm not going to go with them. And Moses' intercession is stunning. Let the words of verse 32 hit you hard. Please forgive their sin. But if you won't, blot me out of the book that you've written. Moses puts himself on the line here. Moses says, I'm willing to die for the sins of the people. If you're not going to forgive, they don't deserve forgiveness for what they're doing. Then here's what you can do, Lord. Take me out. Lock my name out of the book. And interesting that God says, I'm not going to do that, Moses. The soul that sins shall die. Principle that is carried forward throughout Scripture. Moses, you're not going to bear the weight of the people's sins. You go back down the mountain. You go lead the people. 
I'll send my angel before you. We'll continue down this path. Let's end by talking about the greatness of Jesus. Because this is what is being exemplified in the life of Moses. Because what you see in Moses is exactly the walk of what Jesus did. Is that Jesus is the one who does die for the sins of the people. The parallel is absolutely stunning. Is that here are the people and they are full of sins. And atonement needs to be made. And we need one who will come and do this. He is the new Moses. But he is able to do what Moses cannot do. He is able to atone for the sins of the people. He is the perfect high priest. He is that mercy seat. He is that atonement cover. He is everything that is needed. No, Moses, that's not going to be your role. But there will be one who will come and he will deal with sins. Think about the imagery and what's being paralleled. Here is Jesus who comes down from heaven. He comes down and what does He do? He brings the decrees of judgment of those who are not on the Lord's side and blessings for those who are. This is what Moses comes down and do, does. Who's on the Lord's side and who's not? Who's with God is going to do what He says and who's not? This is the life of Jesus. He goes around proclaiming, here's the way of God. Who's going to be on the Lord's side? Who's going to follow what He says? Who's going to obey His commandments? And there will be blessings to those who do and judgments upon those who don't. Then Jesus goes back up into the presence of God and makes atonement for the sins of the people. It's a stunning parallel. Exactly what Moses was to do. As Moses comes down and decrees to them, here's what God says, and now I'm going to go try to make atonement for you. Jesus comes down, decrees the ways of God, and successfully makes atonement for the sins of the people. And through that, God is able to forgive. And we do not receive the wrath we deserve. Because atonement's been made. It's a beautiful picture. What Jesus does in his sacrifice, what Jesus does in being our ransom, in paying this redemption price, in coming and dying for the sins of the people, means that God does not have to give to us the wrath that we deserve. We should hear the words from God. Those are not my people. How quickly they turn from the way. They do not do what I say. They are stubborn, stiff-necked people. And I'd raise my hand and go, you're right. You're exactly right. We don't deserve to be his people. And the intensity of God's love for us that he would receive intercession from his only son so that rebels like us could continue to be his people. It's hard to understand why God would do that. But amazingly, God does it here. And he relents from the disaster that was deserved these people. And for us, he relents from the disaster that's deserved us because Jesus makes intercession for us. May we always live our lives with a full awareness of the gravity of our sin and what God has done 
to rescue us from our sins. We'll sing a song now and we invite you to come to Jesus to see him as your wonderful Savior who makes intercession, who provides atonement for your sins, who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb that we needed, the perfect lamb. If you're ready to come to him, turn away from your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can do that now once you come.